0: Green Street Radio is a production of Grassroots Environmental Education. Learn more about us and our programs at www.grassrootsinfo.org or follow us on Facebook at GrassrootsInfo and on Twitter at GrassrootsENVED. Welcome to Green Street, the environmental health show where we talk about things in the air and water and food supply that can impact your health. I'm the co-host of Green Street, Patty Wood.
1: And I'm Doug Wood. Usually on Green Street, we cover things like fracking, pesticides, breast cancer, GMOs.
0: Sustainable agriculture, flame-retardant chemicals, wireless radiation, BPA.
1: Synthetic turf, glyphosate, autism. Well, you get the point. But today, we wanted to talk about what we call the gas rush.
0: A lot of people have been led to believe that natural gas is part of the answer to our climate change problem that it can actually help reduce our dependence on fossil fuels. There's only one problem, though. Natural gas is a fossil fuel.
1: I don't think most people are aware of the very intense campaign that's underway, on television and radio and print, of course, but also in every level of politics, from small towns across the country to Washington, DC. The campaign is about two things, jobs and energy independence. And the solution to both of these things, we're being told, is natural gas, the little blue flame.
0: But facts are stubborn things, as John Adams famously said. And the fact is that over its lifetime, the extraction, transportation, and burning of natural gas contributes more to climate change than either oil or coal. Let me say that again, just to be clear. Over its lifetime, the extraction, transportation, and burning of natural gas contributes more to climate change than oil or coal.
1: So on today's special edition of Green Street, we're going to talk about the gas rush, the full court press to convince people to convert their homes, their factories, and their transportation fleets to natural gas. Never before in American history has so much money been spent convincing people that burning a fossil fuel is the answer to our energy problems, that natural gas is somehow different from other fossil fuels, and that even if it isn't, The industry is creating real jobs for real people, so we should not only be happy, but grateful. The pace of climate change is accelerating much faster than scientists had originally predicted. Climatologists around the world are urging immediate action to slow that pace and warning that if we are to sustain life on this planet, a worldwide commitment to fundamentally change how we develop and use energy is urgently needed.
0: And against this backdrop, a small group of investors, banks, entrepreneurs and politicians are aggressively practicing business as usual developing and building out new fossil fuel infrastructure that will permit the continuation of the profligate energy policies that have created this dire circumstance.
1: The construction of a massive pipeline network across New England for the purpose of bringing fracked natural gas from Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia to export terminals on the Atlantic coast represents the triumph of greed over rectitude and the victory of a small group of climate deniers over the overwhelming majority of scientists. You would think that the folks engaged in this kind of reckless behavior would be scorned by society, that people of good character would stand up and demand change, but you'd be missing the point. An elaborate, expensive, and amazingly effective public relations campaign has been waged over the past few years to convince Americans that natural gas is the necessary link to our energy future. It's like the clean coal campaign.
2: Some sort of new technology. It made the coal burn cleaner.
3: Yeah, but it turned out to be the same old dirty.
2: Polluting. Black. Coal. It sounded good.
3: Too bad it wasn't true. Just a new name for
0: an old thing. Yeah, clean coal was pretty much just words on paper.
1: So the gas industry needed something better than clean gas. So they came up with a new phrase. And it's brilliant from a public relations and marketing perspective convince people that yes, natural gas is a fossil fuel, but it's not like any other fossil fuel they know. It's different. It's a bridge fuel.
2: What's a bridge fuel? Bridge fuel.
1: Bridge fuel. Bridge fuel. Bridge fuel. fuel. And just like with anything else, the more it was repeated, the
3: more accepted it became. Please don't let me go there. I'm a civil engineer. (laughs) Civil engineers know bridges. (laughs) And uh, uh, most people don't accept this, but engineers also are literary in a sense, so I understand poetic license, I understand metaphor and analogy, and how some people say, we don't mean literally a physical bridge, we mean a temporal bridge, or we mean some sort of symbolic bridge, it's none of the above.
0: This is Dr. Anthony Ingrafia, or Tony as his friends call him. He's a professor at Cornell University.
3: It's not a bridge. It's, it's an absurd notion to say that I'm going to uh, build a bridge that takes me from where I am to where I want to go. That's the purpose of a bridge, right? In between is some place you don't want to go. So you build a bridge from where you are to where you want to go so that you don't fall into some place you don't want to go. So take that analogy, if you will. We're going to build a bridge of fossil fuels to get where we are to where we want to go, which is more fossil fuels, so that we don't fall into fossil fuels.
1: Okay, so the whole idea of a bridge fuel made from a fossil fuel is pretty ridiculous on its face when you think about it. It's amazing, in fact, and a little frightening that we can be so easily manipulated by clever and relentless advertising. But there we are. Millions of people across the country converting their old oil burners to natural gas, big energy companies phasing out coal-fired power plants and replacing them with natural gas plants, big fleets of buses with gas or diesel engines being replaced with engines that run on compressed natural gas, and everyone feeling really good about it because they think they're doing something good, something that's going to make a difference to the planet. And of course, they're right, but not in the way they think. Yes, natural gas burns cleaner, But that's only part of the story, as you will hear. But before we get to that, Patty, where does the natural gas come from?
0: Well, natural gas is actually coming from these shale plays or these shale deposits that are deep underground. And they actually started as inland oceans Uh, hundreds of millions of years ago. Most of the planet was actually covered with oceans. But over time, mountains were formed, and then they were eroded from wind and rain, into these nameless seas. And so then the silt from these eroding mountains mixed with sea life, mollusks and squid and sea lilies. And then under pressure, these aquatic plants and animals decayed and became bubbles of methane within this shale or this rock. So elements from the mountains were also trapped in the shale and that's why we have radioactive materials uh, in the shale, uranium and mercury and arsenic and lead. And as well as a lot of a lot of salt, and there's a lot of salt in the in the shale, a lot of um, brine. Um, so anyway, scientists call these trapped bubbles methane, but energy companies call it natural gas. <music>
1: So natural gas has been around forever, trapped underground in tiny bubbles. But now there's a brand new technology to extract the gas from underground.
4: Vertical drilling, which of course began here in New York State in the 19th century, we were the first state to do, you know, drill for natural gas, that relied on natural gas that was generated um, uh, and moved through geological strata and got trapped in big bubbles. So we could kind of put a straw straight down and up came the gas.
1: This is our friend and colleague Dr. Sandra Steingraber explaining to the members of the New York legislature how fracking works back in 2012.
4: So that was the sort of our grandparents' gas drills. Now we've run through most of that gas. So to get gas out of shale where it's dispersed as a kind of petrified fizz of champagne bubbles, if you will, um, the horizontal drilling proposes to go down and then turn the drill sideways and go about a mile or so and then detonate uh, but with explosives that shale and then Force under very high pressure, uh, chemicalized water to release the, the bubbles.
1: So this new technology, fracking, which was invented by the Halliburton Company, comes along just as people are beginning to understand that burning fossil fuels is contributing to climate change.
0: Poor Halliburton. They spent hundreds of millions of dollars perfecting this technology to use chemicals and explosives to essentially blast the gas out of the ground. And now the public is beginning to wonder if burning any kind of fossil fuel is a good idea. So Halliburton and other companies involved in the gas business push the idea that natural gas is a bridge fuel that burns cleaner than coal or oil.
5: Yeah, when you look at the whole picture, it's it's not a clean alternative by, by any stretch of the imagination.
0: This is Keith Shue. Keith is an electrical engineer and pretty much recognized as a national expert on energy.
5: Um, sure, when you're comparing a a, a modern gas-fired combined-cycle power plant to an old, decrepit coal-burning facility, um, it's gonna be running more efficient. You're gonna be putting less greenhouse gas emissions into the air compared to the old coal technology.
1: Yeah, but that's not the whole story. There's a little more to it than that. It turns out that methane, or natural gas, is a much, much stronger greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. Tony in Graphia
3: again. Methane extracted from shale formations, for example, those in the United States, is the worst possible fossil fuel from the point of view of climate change. One kilogram of methane has the same effect of about 100 kilograms of carbon dioxide. Bottom line is a small amount of methane in the atmosphere has the same effect as a large amount of carbon dioxide. What's not
5: being taken into account when you hear the gas industry brag about the benefits of, of natural gas is the systemic leakage that occurs throughout the entire process from extraction at the well site, uh, through the processing, through the transportation, through distribution of that gas. There's a certain amount of leakage that occurs, uh, and when raw methane, CH4, gets into the air, it's far more potent as a greenhouse gas than CO2, which is the result of methane after you burn it. So when you have uh, a little bit of leakage of raw methane into the, the air, that swamps out the benefits that you might have by switching from coal to gas. But according to Keith, the problem really adds up over time. When you look at the numbers, uh, over a 20-year time frame, methane, CH4, is 86 times more potent as a greenhouse gas than CO2. So you only need a little bit of leakage of, 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 that, of that raw methane to totally cancel out any benefit that you have from switching from coal to gas. Like you said, it's still a fossil fuel. Pipelines
1: leak, it's what they do. Sometimes enough gas collects in a certain spot and then it explodes. And sometimes they just leak gas into the air. Not enough to actually,
3: you know, blow up, but enough to be a problem. company has a certain amount of capital to expend to either drill a new well to fix leaks coming out of old wells, the obvious answer is to drill a new well. Tony and Graffia again. If a company is required to go out and look for leaks in their pipelines, in their distribution pipelines, every five years and fix the ones that are the worst, but they're not required to fix the ones that aren't the worst, what that means is that they only fix the big leakers, but there could be many, 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 many small leakers that... In, as individuals, don't represent an explosive hazard like the big leakers do, but they represent, in the aggregate, a huge impact on climate change.
0: Okay, time for a little science. How exactly does methane help change the temperature of the Earth? Here's Tony and Graphia again.
3: Uh, Methane is uh, a greenhouse gas, like carbon dioxide and like a couple of other chemicals, that when it gets into the atmosphere, uh, acts as basically a thermal blanket. It uh, reduces heat reflection from the surface of the Earth back into space. So since the Earth is always receiving thermal energy from outer space, Theoretically, the Earth should be in balance. The amount of energy coming in should be about the same as the energy going out so that things on the surface of the Earth and in the atmosphere and in the oceans remain more or less the same.
0: The way it has been since, well, the beginning of time.
3: When we get an imbalance because we have too much methane or carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, we're effectively putting a blanket over the Earth. So methane, it turns out, is a better blanket better in the worse sense than carbon dioxide. It does a better job of reflecting heat back onto the Earth and decreasing the amount of heat that gets reflected back into space. And it's not just by a little bit that it's worse than carbon dioxide, it's by a lot. And how much depends upon how long you're willing to wait to see what the effect is.
1: And sometimes, of course, pipelines that leak methane can actually leak enough to explode.
6: explode, but when they do, uh, the heat fluxes can be so high that I've seen uh, in situations where they'll liquefy steel and vaporize aluminum.
7: That's
1: Rick Kuprowitz. He's a pipeline safety expert and used to work for one of the big gas companies in charge of pipeline safety, back in the days when gas companies actually owned and built the pipelines. Rick and his company had a vested interest in building safe pipelines. They didn't want to lose gas from leaks, and they didn't want them to blow up either.
0: But that's not the way pipelines are built today. Today, pipeline companies build pipelines as fast and as cheaply as they can.
6: The sooner the better that they get into operation. You know, the business says the cash flow starts. And so, if you're going to invest many billions of dollars in a project, you, don't, you know a year's delay, for whatever reason, it may be justifiable. Uh, just looking at the financial numbers would tell you that um, you know we need, we need to accelerate whenever possible. And that's an example where the focus on just the financial numbers can cause groups of very smart people uh, to do the wrong thing.
1: And of course, if you're going to build a pipeline, that is if you're going to plan the route, hire the lawyers, contract with the property owners, cut down the trees, dig the trenches, bring in the pipe, put the pipe into place, bring in the welders to weld it together and the inspectors, it gets really expensive, about $5 million a mile
6: as you're going to all these gas pipelines, and gas transmission pipelines, there's kind of an economy of scales where you're trying to, uh, uh, you you know, especially if they're multi-billion dollars, they're going to tend to be larger diameter, uh, higher pressure systems, and the reason for that is is when you're spending this kind of money, the economy of scale kicks in, and in gas transmission pipelines, the larger the diameter and the higher the pressure, the more efficient the gas transmission pipeline operation is. Uh, and so there's kind of an incentive to build a large diameter pipeline if you're going to move that gas.
1: So the gas rush is on. Fracking for natural gas is going on in Pennsylvania and Ohio and other places. Pipelines are being constructed all over the Northeast to carry the gas through our neighborhoods and towns and villages and cities. And even if the pipelines don't leak and never explode, the build out of the gas delivery infrastructure is taking a heavy toll on families who happen to live in the way.
2: So my name is Pramila Malik. I've lived in this house for about 16 years now. I found myself with three boys and decided that I needed a country property for them to run around and grow and be close to nature. So even though we live in New York City, we bought this home as a weekend home. You know, we came on the on on Fridays, left on Monday mornings. They loved it. We were here all summer. You know, they used to come here to catch bugs and fireflies and explore all the interesting creatures that live around us. To climb trees, to swim, to, you know, to do all the activities that kids need to do to appreciate the natural world. And uh, we love this place. I mean, it was a sanctuary. From my perspective, it was a way for my children to see what really matters in the world.
0: Pramila works in New York's technology industry during the week, but on the weekend, she and her family live in a home in the tiny upstate hamlet of Minisink. It's a middle-class kind of town, filled with American flags, church steeples, and small family-owned stores. Many of the first responders to the 9-11 tragedy have retired to Minisink the kind of place you go because it's quiet and peaceful. And then a new neighbor moved in.
2: So in 2011, we received a letter in the mail, and I didn't want to really open it because it looked like junk mail. It was from an agency called the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, But my husband opened it and he said, you should look at this. And I was like, no, 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 I don't have time for junk mail. But he said, no, no, you really should look at this. So I looked at it and I was like, this doesn't make any sense. We're a rural residential community. It's a protected agricultural district. We bought this property because it's, it's a protected zone that prohibits any type of industrial development. So this is just not possible. There must be some mistake here. So I made some inquiries and found out a little bit about it. And I just did a few Google searches to know that a gas compressor station is a toxic facility and it would be um, impossible to have all the things that, that, that we wanted from this property and still live next to this compressor station.
0: A compressor station is part of the natural gas delivery infrastructure. Every 40 or 50 miles, the gas needs to be recompressed to a specific pressure so it can be sent through the pipeline. These are big, noisy, industrial operations with giant compressor engines that run 24-7, emitting toxic pollutants into the air along with escaping methane. Occasionally, they shut the engines down and perform maintenance activities such as blowdowns, that release significant amounts of methane. This is not the kind of thing you want in your backyard. I felt
2: that, well, there must be some mistake and all I have to do is just engage the process and um, identify all the relevant facts. I mean, this is, as I said, a residential area and we had a lot of development in the last couple of years. And so now there were about 200 families that live within a half mile of this property, of this project and um, I just felt it would be antithetical to our definition of environmental protection to have this massive industrial facility right in the middle of this residential and agricultural community so we started putting flyers up all over the place and started organizing and alerted sounded the alarm to all of our neighbors and you know people when they learned the basic facts about what a compressor station was they you know, we're completely on board that it does not belong here. And we started engaging in this federal process uh, that, uh, that is overseen by FERC.
0: That's the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, based in Washington, D.C.
2: And um, again, we engaged the process faithfully. Um, we presented a whole host of facts. So initially we were told that our local zoning laws would apply and that the company would comply with them. But then when, when we showed them our local zoning laws that this is strictly prohibited, then all of a sudden they retracted that and said, no, 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 we don't need to apply, comply with your local zoning laws. So I, we began to get a sense that there's something going on behind the scenes um, and that these companies have some kind of privileged relationship.
0: It turned out there were some special relationships between the gas company and local officials, and thanks to those special relationships, the compressor station was given the green light. Despite the objections of nearly everyone in the town, the mini compressor station, built in the middle of a residential neighborhood, went into operation in 2013.
2: And we discovered, as we had been experiencing prior, that there are significant adverse health impacts already underway. And the facility at that point had only been operational for about a year. Um, we have children getting nosebleeds. My daughter is one of them. She gets terrible nosebleeds whenever they do blowdown events. I get breathing problems. Uh, my son has breathing problems. We have other children getting abdominal cramps, rashes, headaches lots of children getting nosebleeds, other neurological symptoms. So we believe it is, given the evidence, it's, it's from the exposure to the chemicals being released. Even though there are the criteria pollutants that they are required to disclose, so the volatile organic compounds and formaldehyde, and there's a host of chemicals that they are not required to disclose. So we think it's a combination of both of those but nosebleeds for example there's significant evidence that it's a result of formaldehyde exposure and benzene exposure you know there were nights that i would wake up at like two in the morning and just suddenly not be able to breathe for no reason whatsoever and i have no history of breathing problems well millennium admitted that they were venting in the middle of the night but now they've agreed to do it in the middle of the day so basically you know You can either get poisoned in the middle of the night when you're sleeping or you could get poisoned in the middle of the day, take your pick. A lot of families have left, many, many families have left. And so that's how expendable the political establishment and these agencies treat us. You know, we're all expendable, you know, 99% of us um, in their mind are expendable.
1: So how does natural gas look from an economic standpoint? Clearly it's good for the oil and gas companies and their investors, but what about the rest of us? How does the whole gas extraction, transportation, and delivery system impact the economy? ...are expected to
2: create over 45,000 jobs, and each job created by the energy industry supports two... The
1: intense advertising campaign around the gas rush has two main focus points. The first is energy independence. We have enough gas underground to last a hundred years, etc. The second is jobs. Television screens across the country are filled with images of happy people working in the gas industry, accompanied by uplifting inspirational music. If you don't know anything about natural gas and you're not aware that you're being sold something, it's easy to get sucked in.
8: It's really funny you mention that, because one of the things that I've spent many years doing is um, Researching the economic impacts of um, unconventional shale gas development and more recently looking at the economic impact of natural gas infrastructure because that's increasing tremendously across the country.
1: That's Dr. Jeanette Barth, a noted economist who used to be the chief economist for the New York Metropolitan Transportation Authority. We asked her about the economic studies that show great benefits that come from natural gas exploration and utilization.
8: I have found that um, just about all of those studies that are either done by the industry or funded by the industry greatly exaggerate the economic benefits and minimize the economic costs, and in most cases, totally ignore economic costs and substantial economic costs, only one of them being the health costs, because there are uh, there are many studies that have shown that there are negative health impacts associated with production, distribution, and burning of fossil fuels. Those are associated with very high costs, not just to the, the victim of the health calamity and their their families, but also to the general economy due to decreases in productivity, people aren't showing up for work, people aren't going to school, um, increased demand for uh, medical resources, um, so there are huge economic costs associated with all these negative health impacts that fossil fuels cause.
1: So while the industry plays down the actual scientifically proven impacts of natural gas on climate change and on human health... They're really pushing the idea that the natural gas industry is providing good-paying jobs to Americans. We asked Jeanette Barth what she thought of that idea.
8: One of the benefits that is always exaggerated is job creation. And everybody wants jobs. Everybody needs jobs in the communities, you know, so that sounds great. But those job estimates are are very inflated. Just one example was the Keystone XL pipeline, um, a consulting firm hired by TransCanada had found, I think, 119 or 120,000 jobs would be produced from the production, from that pipeline. The Cornell University Global Labor Institute did their own independent study, not funded by the industry, and it concluded that job creation from the Keystone XL pipeline would be little to none, to quote them, little to none job creation on that one. And that's just one example. There are other examples where the industry has greatly over-exaggerated those numbers. The other thing that the industry does not do, they do not always make clear the fact that when they're talking about job creation, um, many of the jobs are very short-term and transient-type jobs. Most of them are just construction jobs while the pipeline is being built. But to actually run a pipeline and operate a pipeline ongoing requires very few workers. So job creation is very, very low over over the long term.
1: I mentioned to Jeanette that while I was doing some video shooting of the construction of the Spectra AIM pipeline, there were literally hundreds of pickup trucks along the construction route, and virtually without exception, they had out-of-state license plates.
8: I think the three top uh, states in terms of number of natural gas pipelines, according to um, federal data, is uh, Texas, Louisiana, and Oklahoma, in that order. And you probably see license plates from those three states. And when the fracking boom started in Pennsylvania, something like 97% of the workers were transient from out-of-state. And those were states they were from, too. They were also some from Arkansas. Um, but yeah, those are the states. And when transient workers come for a short amount of time, most of their wages get sent home to their families in their own states to be spent there. So it's helping the economies in their own states. It's not helping the economies in the states where they're, they're working for a couple of weeks here and there. So those job numbers are totally over, overrated, <laughs> and overestimated.
1: So we've talked about the fact that natural gas is actually more dangerous for the environment than coal or oil that the methane that either leaks or is emitted from pipelines and compressor stations is an incredibly potent greenhouse gas, much worse than carbon dioxide. We've heard how compressor stations are being constructed right in the middle of neighborhoods and how people are suffering from the toxic chemicals they emit. We know that all the talk about jobs is wildly inflated and that the economic costs of natural gas fall mostly on people who have no skin in the game, who will not benefit from the natural gas that's being transported through their towns and cities. But to add insult to injury, I think most people don't really understand that when they write that tax check every April or they look at their W-2s, some of that money is fueling the gas rush.
8: Fossil fuel industry is not paying the full cost of producing fossil fuels. Um, there are many externalities. You mentioned health costs. Well, you should be talking about climate ch- the cost of climate change. I mean, some estimates show that by 2025, it will cost about $260 billion per year to mitigate climate change. But I know that uh, recent peer-reviewed literature uh, in economics has shown that the, the, the models, they're called integrated assessment models, those models that are used to actually estimate the cost of climate change um, are, are underestimating the cost. So even those numbers that we have out there are probably far too low. So um, I think all of these costs should be, um, the fossil fuel company should be required to pay these costs and I don't think that's going to happen.
1: What are we going to do? What does our collective energy future look like? And how are we going to get from where we are to where we want to be?
3: We have to stop investing in fossil fuels and investing in renewables because climate change demands it. The height of hypocrisy is to say, let's make sure we guarantee short-term return on investment in the hell with the long-term because the long-term we're all dead. When you look at the big picture,
5: our total carbon footprint, our transportation, uh, the cars we drive, that's burning fossil fuels, uh, the, how we heat our homes, how we heat buildings, that's another big chunk of our carbon footprint. So those things together add up to, and industrial uses, those things add up to about three quarters of our carbon footprint. So dealing with electricity is, is only one piece. Trying to tackle the, um, the total footprint you have to get people out of the cars we drive, and we need to be driving electric cars. We shouldn't be burning, uh, we shouldn't have, uh, you know, smokestacks on each of our houses that are producing greenhouse gas emissions because we're burning something to create heat. We need to have, uh, you know, air source or, or ground source heat pumps.
8: I'm one of the co-authors of uh, what's commonly called the Jacobson study uh, for New York. Um, professor Mark Jacobson is a professor at Stanford who has done a study for every state here and uh, also the nation as a whole, uh, we have shown that it is feasible for New York State to to transition to 100% renewable energy using just wind, water, and sunlight for all energy purposes, not just electricity. And uh, it can be done using technology that is commercially available today, and um, in the end the price would be just a few cents per kilowatt hour more after you take account of externalities and extra costs that are involved. So I, I think that we can meet demand with renewable energy. Uh, what What is missing are two things: political will and private capital. At this point,
5: we we needed to start yesterday. I think I think the reality is, and I, I think the. Uh, Anybody at this point can even observe some of the climate-changing effects occurring around us. And, and it, you, you can't shrug that off. It's things we can actually see and perceive ourselves, even on our, the human scale that we're at. You know, we, we, don't, have, we, we, we don't have much time. Um, there's far more that must be done, and it has to, happen, hap, has to happen very quickly. So this is a huge issue. And when you, you watch,
7: you know, Josh Fox's film... And you see what happens to New York when they have six feet of uh, sea level rise. And then you think of all the people having to move out of New York. And you see what's happening in Europe with the people who are moving out of uh, Syria. And you look and see what's happening in Asia as the people move out of Southern Asia into Australia. It brings out, this is how we get divided. This this was actually, (laughs) you know, sort of the beginning of civilizations as everybody, because of what was happening on the interior, moved towards the coast and came in contact with other civilizations. Some of it was, uh, um, you know, benign, but a lot of it was incredibly malignant. Um, This distrust and this uh, um, selfishness on the part of people to share the wealth, all of this can be handled. It just takes the commitment it's going to take the commitment of everybody. It's not going to be the corporations that save us, it's not going to be, obviously, it's not going to be government officials that save us. It's going to be every individual committing themselves to making sure that they express themselves and that they put their bodies on the line. It can't just be honking horns anymore or you know marching with picket signs. It has to be
3: more than that. The total number of scientists and engineers working in the Department of Energy and the EPA is a relatively small number of scientists and engineers. And you can throw NOAA in there also, USGS. You're talking a few thousand scientists and engineers who are responsible for executing federal policy about climate change. And they're all going to be out of a job, either literally or figuratively. They're either be told to shut up or they'll be told to leave. Many of those thousands of scientists are going to have to get hired on by the states and by other responsible entities, philanthropic organizations, environmental groups. I would have hoped by now that the big greens would be having help wanted signs outside their door. Uh, EPA scientists and engineers encouraged to apply. (laughs) Um, That sort of thing has to happen. Uh, We have to make sure that that brain trust, those very good scientists and engineers working for the federal agencies that will no longer be working have a way to continue to do their good science and engineering at the state level, uh, so that when the EPA is revived, hopefully in four years, they'll they'll come back in. They'll, they'll, we need to find a place to put that reservoir of talent.
8: I think we better move very quickly. It's almost it's almost too late. Um, things are going in the wrong direction, and um, with the leadership we have now in Washington, um, it really is going to be incumbent upon states to do more, um, and we have to do things right away and um, just find ways to do it, find ways to spend the money, and it's going to be an expensive job to make the transition, but we have to do it.
7: It doesn't have to be violent, but it is definitely a revolution. The people of America have got to take their government back. They've lost it. We've lost our democracy. Large multinational corporations have so perverted this system with the amount of money that they have and the amount of money they spend on influencing politicians that those people, our representatives, no longer represent us. So the people have got to take it back. How do they take it back? Well, when they take it back, they go in the streets, which they are, they're going in the streets in Brazil. They're going in the streets all over the world. We're sort of behind the curve because we have been bamboozled by the corporate media to believe that our participation, our vote, our voice does not count. So the first thing is to convince people, is to get people to understand you count, your opinion counts, your participation counts.
1: You're listening to Green Street, and the voices you've been hearing in the past few minutes belong to Dr. Anthony Ingrafia from Cornell University, Dr. Jeanette Barth, our economist, Keith Chu, our electrical energy expert, Rick Kuperwitz, our pipeline expert, Pramila Malik, who lives in Minisink, New York, and James Cromwell, the actor James Cromwell, who is a friend of Pramila's, and we met when we did the interview with her. So that's our program on the gas rush, a campaign by natural gas companies to convince you that it's a bridge fuel and it's a good thing to do if you care about global warming when in fact it really isn't. So I thought we'd talk for a minute about what individuals can do, our listeners to Green Street, uh, what you can do and the first thing I, that comes to my mind is, you know, don't convert to natural gas. Don't convert your heating system over to natural gas. How about uh, you know a heat pump or
0: yeah? And you know there are there are some things that you can actually do with your oil. There's a catalytic converter of some kind that can actually make it more efficient by like twenty percent. I just read about this. I don't have a lot of information, but I will have and we will we will you know talk about that in a, in a future show. Um, but you know former mayor Bloomberg did start this trend of. Moving heating systems in the city from the undeniably polluting, you know, heating oil number four and number six uh, over to gas. And a lot of buildings in New York City have actually done that, and they're continuing to do that, um, thinking that it is a, a better, you know, way to, uh, you know, to, to heat. Um, so this is, um, this is a little bit problematic. So I agree 100% that people should just not convert. From yeah, um, Oil to gas. Yeah. Just don't do that because we are going to have, you know, more accessible, more price competitive renewables, you know, on the market ready to go with all kinds of incentives. And, uh, you know, things from both the state and the federal government to to convert to renewables. And so I think that people should just hold off on that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, even though they've been told that this is the right thing to do.
1: One of the things that we didn't talk about in the show, I had some clips about economics, about the fact that gas is right now very inexpensive, but it's artificially, uh, artificially low. As soon as the demand goes up, as more and more people start to use natural gas, the price is going to go up. And, uh, you know, we're competing with overseas markets where they really pay a lot more for gas. So, you know, right now gas looks very attractive um, from a price point. But when you look at the cost of gas and the impact of gas on the environment and on global warming, if that's what you're concerned about and you you share the concern of your fellow planet inhabitants to preserve and protect our planet – Natural gas is the last place you want to go. It's the worst possible fuel to use in terms of global warming. Right. The other idea that I had was, you know, we talked about this kill switch.
0: Now, wait a second. So you're, you're, you're moving to the second thing that we think people can do, and you're moving to conservation, am I right? I am. Okay. So talk yeah. about your kill switch.
1: Well, okay. So the cheapest energy that we can possibly come up with is the energy that we save by turning off lights and otherwise conserving power, right? That's the cheapest, easiest energy for us to get. Um, And so my idea for the kill switch was to put a switch in your house that would turn off all non-essential items. And I think, you know, if I could get this idea, somebody would pick up on this idea. I really think it's a good one. I think every house should come with a you know, a, a switch by the front door or the back door, whichever door you use, and as you go out, you flick that switch and it automatically turns off everything that's non-essential.
0: Which would um, be not your refrigerator, no, not your, your freezer, and not, you know, any kind of medical devices or things that you that you have to have um, on all the time. But there's a lot of stuff... That's in every single room of your house that could actually be turned off and it would be, it would be cumbersome. People wouldn't run around, especially if they live in big houses, run around from the basement to the, you know, to the, to the second floor, you know, turning everything off and unplugging everything in, in those rooms. But if you had a switch that they were all connected to all these non essential you know uses and and you could make your own decision about what it is you wanted to attach to the kill switch or connect to that kill switch make your own decision but as soon as you leave the house you just flip that switch off and everything goes off do you know what kind of energy you could save yeah I, if I, this became you know sure. a, a a a trend
1: it's like it's like a dripping faucet which looks like it's not a lot of not a lot of uh, Right, water. it's not a lot
0: of water until you get your water bill and all of a sudden it's from you know your water bill used to be $13 and now it's $300. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Because that leak is leaking all the time. That's a how really
0: many, good analogy how, though, a dripping faucet. Well, a dripping many, faucet. How many
1: devices do you have in your house that have that little blinking light that's going on and off and on and off and on and off on your VCR or your your TV or your computer system or whatever it is? that's just sitting there eating little bits of energy all day long. And you forget
0: to turn off lights. We do.
1: You know, when I was in Europe 45 years ago, um, I was staying with a family, and they had uh, action-initiated lights. So as soon as somebody, you know, opened the door or walked in the driveway or did anything, that's when the lights went on. They stayed on for three minutes, and then they went off. It was simple. Okay, and the last thing that I could think of that people should probably do is vote for people who care about climate change and what's happening to our planet. We have too many politicians out there who are getting away with murder. Contact your representatives, tell them how much you care about climate change, how concerned you are about your family, your grandchildren, your children, and and demand that they do something about it. And you know, Phone calls really do add up, and they really do pay a lot of attention.
0: Yeah, call Bernie Sanders' office. Call Bernie Sanders' office in Washington or in Vermont and just say, you know what, what can I do on the local level? What do I do? His staff will tell you what to do. He is the man behind this revolution in, in the United States, and he himself has said that this is the biggest issue, and I believe that it is.
1: That's going to do it for this special edition of Green Street. I'm Doug Wood, along with my co-host, Patty Wood. Green Street Radio is a production of Grassroots Environmental Education. We're a nonprofit dedicated to informing the public of the links between common environmental exposures and human health impacts. On the web at grassrootsinfo.org. You can hear this program again at greenstreetradio.com. And we hope you'll join us again on another edition of Green Street.